Welcome back to another episode of Product Love, hosted by Eric Bodick, serial entrepreneur and co-founder of Pendo, a product experience platform. Every day we use different kinds of products to help us go about our lives. Behind each product is a product manager who has carefully built something they hope their users love. This is Product Love, the podcast where we interview product managers and explore the craft of product management. Welcome lovers of product. If you love listening to this podcast, you might be interested to know that some of our previous guests will be headlining the Product Craft Conference. So the Product Craft Conference is in San Francisco. It's coming up. It's on February 25th, and tickets are on sale now. You can get them at productcraft.com slash conference. Well, welcome, lovers of product. Today, I'm here with Jason Miller, VP of Product at Pendo. So Jason, why don't you kick this off by giving us a quick little overview of your background? Sure. Happy to, and thanks for having me. Uh, so my background, how I ended up in products, I started off doing a lot of design work. I would say early on, I always I had like bootleg copies of Photoshop back in the day. And I think I got to a point where I really wanted to build a lot of the things that I was designing. So I started uh, studying engineering at NC State, and then I added on a, a business major during that and was fortunate enough. I had good mentors early and took the plunge to do our first startup when we were in school, ended up moving to the West Coast and have been doing product out there uh, for a while before coming back here to Raleigh. Awesome. Awesome. So talk to me about the early experience. Yeah, sure. So maybe if I start with uh, the first startup, uh, when I was at NC State, we were doing a lot of app development on the uh, Facebook platform right when it first came out. And one of the engineers that I met was living in New York. Uh, He was eventually going to go to Duke. Uh, We became friends. And through that process, we found out that he had this cool spreadsheet that helped him uh, forecast where he was going to get accepted into various universities, which is kind of a fun and nerdy approach to the college admissions process. Eventually, we started to build an app to do something very similar. So So, So was he accurate? Yeah, he was, uh, you know, he was also very smart, though. So I think he had his, his pick of the litter. But we ended up, ended up productizing a lot of what he built. And that's kind of what turned in to this Facebook app. Uh, and we ended up amassing good early usage. But this was back when you could do things like invite five friends to see your results. So they had a lot of these viral mechanisms built into the platform, which they ended up parting ways with because they became incredibly annoying. Uh, We took advantage of that early, showed kind of early adoption, uh, and then New Enterprise Associates ended up giving us a million bucks, and we got to work out of their office uh, off Sand Hill Road to get started. So talk to me more about that journey at MyFit. What did you learn from it? And it had to be a really cool experience working out of NEA, because there's a a lot of interesting companies that got incubated there. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I mean, our... Our million dollars was probably a rounding error for their, I think, $12 billion fund at the time. But yeah, as part of that experience, Max and I got to work out of their office. So, you know, the office next to us was Mike Ramsey, who founded TiVo. And you're, you're how old right now? So at the time, I think I was 21, and I think Max was 18 or 19. So he was, I think he'd only been at Duke for a couple of years before we ended up shifting over to NEA. So sorry, you're sitting next to the founder of TiVo. Yeah, which was a wild experience. And then, you know, Kitsu, who did Healthion and WebMD, was uh, our other neighbor at the office. And then Patrick Chung was our partner at NEA. And it was great. It was just kind of an early crash course on, 
you know, focus on the product, we'll kind of help take care of the rest. And I think that's, that's one of the benefits of, of, you know, raising capital from a firm that already has all the infrastructure in place. You don't have to worry about it as much early on as founders. But yeah, so the, the MyFit experience was, was wild. We, uh, we made a lot of mistakes. You know, we didn't really know what the hell we were doing. We were passionate about, you know, building apps, but we were brand new to, you know, MyFit uh, would predict your likelihood of being accepted or rejected at college ahead of time. And then we would try to give you more demonstrable guidance on what you could improve or how you could focus, or we would help you discover universities you might not otherwise be thinking about, which was a lot of fun. I think we could have focused more. I think product market fit is is so, so critical. There's a lot of literature on product market fit now. I think 10 or 12 years ago, we knew we needed a focus, but there was a little... We needed more pushing probably on why product market fit was so critical and, and nothing else really mattered at that point. So I think, you know, look, with MyFit, we built an awesome network. Um, we got to go kind of soup to nuts. We started to run out of money uh, near the end, but we had built a lot of relationships with other big software companies in the EDU space and ended up getting acquired by Naviance. And I think, I think someone from our original MyFit team still works there you know, 10 or 12 years later, which was kind of exciting. So talk to me about product market fit, you know, and you mentioned there's different frameworks out there, you know, there's, you know, the Sean Ellis superhuman kind of stuff. What, what do you think about this concept of product market fit? Yeah, for sure. Um, obviously, if when you're a startup, it, it is the most critical thing to go deep on, you know, depending on the product uh, and the industry and your buyer, you know, there are different ways to think about product market fit. You know, if you're a consumer business operating, uh, you know, higher scales of end users, you're focused more on retention, right? Are people coming back and doing the same, you know, key event that we think is kind of the value transaction over and over? You know, depending on if you start looking at different models, if you're a B2B model where you might not have the luxury of 100,000 users, you kind of want to focus a little bit more on the qualitative context of are people willing to give you their time or money? Uh, to dig into product market fit on that front. Cool. So now you've been a product manager for over a decade. Talk to me about how the craft's changed. Sure. I think, uh, you know, again, it probably depends on, you know, the industry in which you operate, the product in which you work on. Uh, one of the things we like to say is kind of the only constant is there's so many very like everything is variable across these different teams. I think the craft is always going to evolve, you know, as markets become more dynamic. So, you know, I, I think one of the cool changes over the past, I don't know, 10 years is that product is more kind of the epicenter of a lot of these businesses. I think if you look 20 or 30 years ago, product management was probably more like project management on top of development resources. So it was, you know, it, it kind of depends. And I think like, the evolution that we see now, though, is like more and more companies are becoming product led. So they're trying to think more like the customer. They're trying to think more about kind of quantifying these dynamic markets. They're trying to think, how do we how do we stay relevant? And there was some interesting data around if, if you look at the Fortune 500, for example, the staying power of those companies like 30 years ago is very different than kind of the staying power more recently where you see more dynamic companies like, you know, three kids with laptops will come out of nowhere and start to make demonstrable disruption on these big industries, right? You see these new brands like Dollar Shave Club come up overnight and they have clever concepts. They're fresh. 
you see these bigger billion dollar acquisitions. So I think like, if you think about the craft of product, it's how do we make impact faster? How do we become more dynamic with these bigger dynamic markets? Which is fun. I mean, it's, it's a tough role, right? Absolutely. I think we're going to see a lot more changes too in product management. A lot, a lot of the trends, you know, an interesting thing. And, and I, when I was talking with uh, Raul from Superhuman, is he's talking about like how game design and the concepts behind game design, he sees, you know, going to affect product management on the enterprise, which is kind of an interesting thought too. So uh, I think we're going to see some cool things. You got AI coming up and how that's going to impact the Java product manager and maybe make the integration of some of the machine learning kind of components affect the way they think about, you know, how they execute on their craft, right? So it's going to be an interesting next, you know, decade, I think, for product managers too, as far as change. Totally, yeah. You know, there, there's so many interesting applications of artificial intelligence and machine learning. And if I think about product, you know, I know we've talked a lot about product operations as a function within product proper. And I, I do think a lot of kind of the information into product, there's a big opportunity to figure out how to synthesize and manage that at scale. Yeah. And that, that's a trend now. Let's talk a little bit about that. How do you see like product ops changing things in product management? Because we're seeing a lot more of that function get, I don't want to say institutionalized, but get centralized within different companies so that there's a, a strong operations role, just totally. like, you know, revenue has had for a while and marketing has had maybe for a little while. Yeah, totally. And you know, the, the one caveat with product operations, you know, the, the way that we uh, have designed it here, and again, it's an experiment, right? This isn't, we're not going to hire 100 product operations managers in the next several years. But, you know, the experiment that we're running right now is because markets are more dynamic than ever, consumers have more options than ever, we need to make sure that our product team is constantly aware where the market is headed. And so we don't have product owners and product managers here, right? We kind of combine that into this core product management role. We want those PMs spending as much time with customer facing teams and customers alike to identify more of these trends, to you know, be as close as they can to the needs and how the needs are evolving. And so when we think about product operations, there's still the whole business that needs to be ran, right? There's this big retention bucket and then there's the growth bucket. So when we think about retention, Product operations is servicing the entire internal organization. So, you know, if there's a prospect request, if there's an at-risk request, if, if there is kind of this sea of customer requests that are coming in, that team is goal on figuring out how to automate a process in so that we get better signal from noise across all the requests that are coming in a product. So one of the things we like to point out is we're not creating a firewall between product managers and internal teams. We're actually creating stronger bridges and more consistent processes of communication in and out. And I know like we've talked before too about the differences between like consumer product management roles and kind of B2B product management roles. In consumer roles, if you have the luxury of end user scale, you can kind of run experiments and see if these things take or not. Whereas if you're in a B2B position where you know, every single customer matters, especially depending on your average contract value, you need a lot of information synthesis kind of coming in. And so that's kind of how we see product ops, uh, you know, lending a hand right now. So stepping back to your career, right, you started at MyFit uh, at an early age and got exposed to some some really interesting stuff, right? Just the, the people you were kind of, you know, 
sharing the office with, so to speak. And then since then, you've done a lot in product management at a bunch of different companies. See if I remember the list, Yelp, ClearSide, Brightloom, UserVoice, and, and now Pendo. So what advice can you give product managers out there when they're thinking about you know, their career path? Yeah, for sure. I, I get asked kind of a related question pretty regularly, which is you have all these smart new grads coming from universities there are even universities now that actually have curriculum around product management. I know we, we engage with CMU, among others. Go Tartans. Uh, that's right. <laughs> but yeah, like, I, you know, it, it kind of comes down to the person and kind of what you want to learn. So my advice to anyone is optimize for what you want to learn and make sure that whatever you're doing speeds up your ability to learn, right? And then you always want to balance that with make sure you get paid when you're doing great work and you're working hard. So if I think about the role of product management, you're gonna learn different things at different sizes and stages of various business, businesses rather. We jumped right into the deep end doing a startup and we screwed a bunch of stuff up. You know, instead of focusing on just product market fit, we started to learn more about kind of the finance side of the business. We focus on the marketing side, we focus on the sales side, we focus on, there's all these other uh, curriculum you you have to get up to speed on and so therefore you kind of have uh, you end up with kind of a breadth of information that's maybe you know a hundred to a thousand feet deep whereas if we would have gone to a bigger company out of the gate and I would have joined a product team that already had 10 or 20 product managers you know over 100 engineers that was already kind of well ran organized I probably would have got more of the product management brass tacks and so not to say one approach is better than the other. I do think on average, if you want to get in a product, your odds are probably a little bit better going to an existing world-class product team, right? That already has the infrastructure in place, that has training in place to get you up to speed. If you go the startup route, again, it's, it's much higher risk. You're going to learn more of a breadth of things, but I think, I think both are interesting. I imagine a mix of the two is ideal, like get involved in a startup, get that experience and also find somewhere that does it. You're impressed by their product yeah, and by their product management. Uh, be totally. like, I can learn from those guys totally. like Shopify or whoever it happens yeah. to be. One of my friends uh, was always really good at reminding me. A lot of times you hear people want to get into startups because they want to make an impact. You know, they have to steer the ship. They want to make a big impact. And his point was always, you realize you can make a really big impact a lot easier. You're like, oh, how? It's like, well, go to a company that already reaches 100 million people, right? You can go push a feature uh, at Yelp to 10 million people over lunch. That's a pretty big impact pretty quick, which is why I thought Yelp was kind of a cool transition from a startup in that when you have the luxury of scale and you, you have leadership like Jeremy and Yelp, uh, sorry, and Eric, Eric was our VP of product at Yelp, they were really uh, open. You had like full autonomy as a PM there, which was really cool. And then we had an experiments council that makes sure you wouldn't mess anything up. So if you have a big feature idea, you design it, you work with a small team of engineers, you go to the experiments council, they set your measures of success, they'll run it to a cohort of users, and they'll tell you after lunch if it was, you know, a success or not in terms of an experiment. And that was kind of a that was a fun way to know you weren't going to get in too much trouble shipping features at Yelp to that many people. Yeah, talk to me a little more about Experiments Council, because a lot of the, the enterprise people probably aren't as familiar with that concept just because of scale. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was it was super cool. I mean, 
obviously other big consumer brands all have a similar function. If you look at Facebook or Google or Pinterest or Airbnb, they're, they're super fine tuned on running small cohort experiments. Um, it was great. Uh, I think the upside when compared to B2B, if you think about B2B, you might have an average contract value of 50 grand, 100 grand, million dollars. You can't really experiment on those people as effectively, right? Like if, if you have a customer paying you a million dollars and you have a junior PM with a big idea and they ship it and then half of that team gets that feature and they're like, what the hell is this? Like my team's not trained on it. We have a very specific workflow. There's a lot more money than a million dollars riding on this product. That's why we pay you a million dollars for it. And so it's it's different approaches to kind of validating am I taking steps in the right direction or not? And so that, that would be my encouragement if you can go to a big consumer business, get that experience as well, because it'll you can kind of take that experimental mindset back. Yeah. So tell me what what can those enterprise PMs learn from you know concepts like experiment councils and B two C. Yeah, for sure. I think um, it's kind of about taking a balanced approach. I would say, you know, if you're a PM navigating into the B2B realm, you got to get really good at, at talking and conversing and categorizing and identifying themes with smaller groups of customers, right? Now, that helps inform directionally, are we headed in a good position? And then when it comes to experimentation, I think what shifts a little bit is the maybe seriousness of the communications around it. So if you think about Yelp, I don't have to tell anyone on any team internally that I'm running an experiment outside of the council, right? I can just go, I can push it, we can learn, we can make a call. When you go to B2B, you need more infrastructure around partnering with product marketing, partnering with internal comms, partnering with sales success. You need to inform all of these teams when you are, for example, rolling something into a closed beta or an open beta or pushing something to be generally available. So there are these different gates that you can operate in which these bigger customers uh, will come in. And I think that's kind of where the balance is, right? You can't surprise people with these tests. They kind of have to be a little bit more methodical in, in how you're communicating it internally and to customers. Absolutely. So let's dig into that a little bit more. You've worked at both, uh, not necessarily experiment councils, but consumer and B2B SaaS, right? You've worked at both. Does product management look different in those two businesses beyond just the things we've covered already? Yes, um, <laughs> it, uh, it does. And again, it'll, it'll depend on the scale. It'll depend on the DNA of your leadership team. Uh, it'll depend on the product that you're shipping. But product management does look quite different, at least in my experience and, and, you know, conversing with friends at various B2B and consumer companies. I think there there's questions around organizational design and maybe how those differ. One of my favorite quotes is the, the best organizational design is the least worst, right? So organizational design is tough, right? It's, it needs to be as, as dynamic as your product and stage of your business. So you kind of have to grow and evolve and iterate. Um, if I think about the roles and responsibilities of product managers and, and maybe more of a consumer environment, you need to have a very, very close pulse on bigger market trends outside of maybe just what your product does. And the reason is like users are finicky, right? If you have a million users and, you know, depending on your business model, something new comes out, you know, the switching costs are almost zero, Right? If you're maybe not even paying for a product or paying a very, very little amount, switching costs are negligible. So you could see these big 
flocks of users go from, you know, MySpace to Facebook to Instagram to TikTok. And it's just these things can sprout overnight, right? So as a product manager, I really need to understand kind of the psychology of the masses. Whereas if you're at a B2B business and you might have annual contracts, for example, no one's going to, you know, just shift their opinion on how these things work overnight and you have to rethink your whole model. It's, it's kind of a longer play. You need to understand workflows. You need to understand business infrastructure in and around what you're selling. And I think that the biggest thing for PMs in a B2B environment is probably around communication, right? You need to be talking to sales. You need to be talking to success, product marketing, professional services. You need to have strategies around pricing and packaging. It forces you to think more about the revenue of the business, not just the features in which you're shipping, right? Or not just the needs of a specific, you know, group of customers. You kind of got to elevate to a position where you're, you're as a product manager, thinking more like a CEO because you need to you need to kind of hone in your communication skills as such. So, you know, I imagine another difference on B two B to B two C is is feedback too. Let's talk a little bit about feedback, right? There's so many sources of feedback that product managers can get. It's competitors, customers, sales, in the enterprise. You have the customer success groups. How do you distinguish and manage that through what can be like a river of noise? You know, get the signal out of all that noise. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, definitely more experience in B two B leveraging qualitative feedback. I think if you have 100 million users parsing through, you know, forums, if it's, there's a bunch of trolls out there, it could be harder separating the signal from noise when you have 100 million people. And even at that scale, your feedback's gonna look a lot like automated spam to a degree, right? Any, any way that channels can come in. I think for B2B, the exciting part and kind of where we're at now with feedback is all of the business infrastructure keeps getting more and more integrated. You see a lot of products coming to market right now that try to parse together all of the different business infrastructure to offer a consistent, seamless customer experience such that if, you know, I'm a JetBlue loyalist and, you know, I send them a text message that goes to the same tracking as a tweet, goes to the same tracking as an email, goes to the same tracking as a uh, their call center. They use a product I think called Gladly and Gladly kind of ties all these disparate channels of feedback into one kind of seamless experience. So as an end user, I could send you a text and they could reference an email that I sent three months ago, which is kind of cool. So I like that analogy for just SaaS products in general. You know, if you have Salesforce, for example, as your CRM and a sales rep is taking notes in Salesforce about a feature request that a prospect has, being able to get your hands on that information is very valuable. Similarly, if your customer success team has an at-risk customer who needs a specific integration, getting your hands on that is very valuable. And then giving consumers easy ways to voice their opinion on what they want is very valuable. So I think a lot of product managers now are trying to figure out how do I have a single source of truth for all the feedback coming in? And it's not to say that you know, you want to look through 10,000 pieces of feedback line by line, although a lot of these businesses do it. I think it's a part of the practice, but it's figuring out how do you thematically understand the directions of needs that exist, right? So it, when we were working on Eats and Brightloom, you know, it, the product there was we were basically automating a lot of the retail experience uh, and doing a lot of kind of marketing automation on top of that. We ended up opening, you know, five or six restaurants to kind of prove out this model. And 
after every $6 bowl of food that we sold, we would send an email out kind of like Uber did and give people the opportunity to say one through five, mostly it'll normalize to 4.2. We didn't care about as much of that as we did the categorical reasons for when people were pissed, right? So if people gave us a one, two or three, we would start to hone in what are the six categories we want people to start verbalizing so that thematically we were able to create sub themes off each of those and that type of feedback really just helped organize parts of the business, right? It wasn't any one particular feature request as much as it was thematically, hey, people want you know their food to come out in 40 seconds. So there's this speed category that for whatever reason, our loyalists really care about. So let's dig into that and set some you know KPIs on top of speed. So, so it's, it's like directionality, right? Like directionality. Yeah, and, and it leads into features, right? So we can talk about that. Like how do you kind of dig into and understand what people want versus what people really need? And do you dig in via customer interviews to understand the context more? Take me through that process of like understanding, you know, how to apply that feedback into into features and group those into the wants versus needs to drive that product direction. Yeah, for sure. And I think Hannah, who was a CEO of Receptive, Receptive is a feedback tool that, that we acquired, which is now Pendo Feedback. Hannah is like the best at trying to understand themes and feedback and how to actually use feedback at scale. One of the things that I learned from Hannah was like, humans naturally request things in the form of features, right? I want you guys to go build PDF export. So as, as part of their learning, they try to figure out how do you ask questions that tease out more than needs ahead of time, right? That way product managers don't have to unpack specific feature requests. If you ask a user a line of questioning along the lines of like, what are you trying to accomplish? You know, what, where is the pain? That starts to get more to the root cause of a feature request, for example. And those things are far more valuable to product teams, right? If if all we did was build what people asked for, we would kind of end up with an outdated product, no matter how fast we did that. I think what we want to do is we want to kind of unpack a feature request into a need, and then we need to categorize the needs, and then we need to place bets on how big is the market opportunity if we address this need over this need. And so it, to me, it's kind of like abstracting the feedback down to more actionable needs that then you can kind of quantify a market opportunity against. And now you segment or categorize that based upon like how much that customer or prospect fits into, you know, your positioning. So like, are you going after the customers that maybe aren't, are close to being your ideal customer so you can kind of push them there as opposed to going after the ones that maybe in the Itza case tried it once and absolutely hated three categories and you're like, well, I got a lot of work to turn them into yeah. a loyal customer, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. I think, I mean, going back to the, the superhuman survey, part of, part of their analysis is interesting, right? If you ask someone, how disappointed would you be if you could no longer use this product, right? The people that say very disappointed, yeah, you should probably understand them. You should understand the themes and categories as why. Then there's a grouping that's somewhat disappointed. And then there's a group that's like not disappointed at all. You know, I, they use funny language. They're like, we're going to politely disregard the people who wouldn't be disappointed at all. Why? Eh, like the odds of us converting them versus the people that are somewhat disappointed and a very disappointed, the delta there is smaller. And those are probably more our, you know, addressable market long term. I think, uh, you know, I think it kind of comes down to communication for the people who you aren't going to service. That's the muscle you got to get really good at. So 
you know, if people ask you to build something and you can kind of look at your vision and where the market is headed, if it's not aligned, it's totally fair and actually appreciated if you say, no, we're not going to do it. And here's why you can actually build really loyal customers. If you help them to maybe rethink what their pain is and kind of what we believe the bigger pain to be long-term and how we want to address it. Atlassian did a super cool experiment where when people submit feature requests, all they did uh, initially was have an email that was automated that would say, hey, we really appreciate your request. Here are the next five things we are doing, right? So they would kind of play back some of their near-term roadmap and they saw like a demonstrable improvement to NPS doing that, right? So it's, you know, I, I think that's kind of a cool mechanism to, you're almost kind of coaching the user up to where we think the bigger gains are. And if you can get them bought into that, they're more willing to drop kind of these lower level feature requests that they, they might perceive to be the biggest pain at the time. Yeah, and, and being able to explain to them why you're doing those five things and how that can impact, I guess, their their business or their job or what they're trying to do. Totally, I, there's, like, there's definitely a market opportunity for a product to figure out how to automate some of that coaching. Right. Like the one of my other favorite quotes is like when you get tired of talking about it, people are just starting to listen. That's true internally and with customers. Right. So you could sit down with a sales rep, tell them something three times and like, oh, I get it. Yeah, I get it. A month later, they're not kind of pitching the way in which you coach. And so, like, I think there's this opportunity to figure out how do you take a very use case centric approach to coaching? How do you reiterate on it over and over and over so that you actually can educate and move towards uh, the vision and the direction? It's, it's a tough problem. I think you and I have talked about how, how hard communication is just in general. And the bigger you get, the harder it gets. And there's no perfect playbook for it. And you know, I think a lot of product managers are looking for what's the playbook on how to do product at a thousand person company making X million dollars a year in revenue. And it's like, there's too many variables at play to give you a playbook. You yeah. Know? And communication, especially at scale, both internally and externally is a challenge. Right? Yeah. Which is why like one of my other favorite ways to disarm folks internally is to always ask how we can improve. If, if you get really good as a product team doing that, it, it doesn't feel like a taboo anymore. It doesn't feel this like, confrontational question around, oh, I really hate that the product team is doing this and this, like, what are they gonna change? We coach our team to be very vocal monthly on like, hey, we're super pumped. We feel like we made a demonstrable jump from here to here, but we feel pain again here. Like, help us understand how we can improve this. And I think Ray Dalio, he has his book on principles. They have a similar notion in that book that talks a lot about just identifying pain and making that a normal part of the conversation at your company. Pain is just an opportunity, usually in disguise. So if you can get people more, uh, you know, candidly talking about where the pain exists, it's super easy to adjust. I think most product teams in the nature of their jobs are flexible. So it's like, we can do whatever is best for the business, but you guys got to help us understand what those pivots look like, you know? So we talked a little about scale and then uh, and around communications, but there's also that scaling of growth, right? So you have secret weapons for that? Lasers, maybe? Yeah, lasers. Um, yeah, so if I think about growth, you know, there's a couple categories like, uh, you know, user and customer growth being one. How do we grow the business? And then growth in terms of internally as an organization, 
you know, how do we how do we maintain focus? How do we improve communications as we get bigger? If I think about growth, you know, uh, for the business itself, I would probably unpack that into different tactics for consumer growth, which I'm far less experienced in. But I think a lot of that probably comes down to experimentation, right? How good are you at creating a, a flywheel of experiments that help you optimize uh, what you have and then continue to place bets on that front? If I think about growth in, you know, enterprise and more B2B, it kind of comes down to really aligning with your revenue teams, right? So it's sitting down and talking about uh, what public markets want to see. If we think about compound annual growth rates, you know, what's the revenue we're doing today? And then how can the product team help get to the next big milestone from a revenue point of view? So we always take a balanced approach to that, right? Net revenue retention you want at 140%. Right? So that's kind of your baseline in terms of, is our existing customer base happy? Are we giving them the right level of attention? Are they kind of growing with us? And then there's kind of like net new ARR, which is, do we feel like the market in which we're operating is big enough? Do we need to do more exercises around trying to quantify adjacent markets that we think we could place new bets in, but that wouldn't totally distract from our core thesis or vision? And so I think growth in the enterprise it's kind of, you gotta be patient. It's kind of a long-term play. You know, there's no one experiment that's gonna get you from 50 million to 300 million. Whereas in consumer businesses, you can see more of those multiples. Now, there's always exceptions to that rule, right? I think there's a lot of really cool enterprise businesses that have figured out how to achieve those multiples of growth. But I think for, uh, you know, B2B SaaS, it's about consistency, it's about predictable revenue, it's about, you know, if, if you have existing contracts in place, how do you go from an ACV of a hundred grand to 500 grand? Like what's your business model? How might you iterate on that over time to, to get it closer to the multiples you want? So it's, it's hard. Like it, it really depends on, again, the product and what you're selling. But I think it's, it's just important, you know, B2B focus on the revenue, focus on you know, really understanding and trying to quantify what the problem is, right? A lot of these outside-in selling approaches says if you can quantify the problem, then budgets don't matter, right? Because these executives, depending on your economic buyer, have timelines and initiatives. And if you can speed these things up, you're going to kick ass, right? If you can come in and say, look, I'm not going to walk you through a list of 100 features. The last thing I want to do is end up in a spreadsheet with three other tabs of competitors and talk about features, I want to talk more about how we're going to partner with you for growth so that if you buy us today, we'll be with you for 10 years. And I think that's why the, the interpersonal skills of product are super important because you need to be able to navigate those conversations and just not bullshit people, right? Like I don't want to show someone a 12 month roadmap and lead them to believe it's accurate. I want to say, yeah, directionally, this is what we're pumped about. Here's why it aligns with what you're pumped about. And then the proof is in the pudding. So a quarter from now, let's check in and see what we've, called our shot on and kind of take steps that way. Yeah. I mean, another area of like, you know, digging into that communication and, and friction and, and just organization is, uh, you know, the interaction between products and the other teams around product, like engineering and design, if design's not part of the product org, uh, what advice do you have for like those junior PMs who are working across there and trying to influence people that may be, you know, more senior than them and maybe influences in the right word, just, you know, what advice do you have on kind of getting those teams to gel and work together well? Yeah, for sure. So if, you know, we, we kind of call it like the iron triangle in terms of product design and engineering. 
we talked a little bit earlier about kind of the evolving role of the product manager, which I think maybe is important to reference. Historically, if you think about kind of the waterfall approach to product development, PMs were very focused on like product requirements documents. So go talk to customers, you know, go sit down and draft a 40 page PRD, go then sit down with design. Design can do all the high fidelity mocks ahead of time. We'll package it up in this thing and then throw it over the wall to the development team Then they'll go build it. And then a year from now, we'll have the first version of it. I think the, the evolution now is, you know, how can the product manager be more of the beacon of understanding? Right. So, you know, coaching your product team to really focus on the why right? there's a million books on this and, and why it's important. But you want the product manager to come first to like the design lead and the tech lead. And you want to sit down and just have a conversation about the objectives of the business. Hey, here's why we're excited. Right? You've got to be motivational and inspirational. Here's what we think the market opportunity is. And then we're getting asked as a team, how do we impact that metric? Like what could we be doing next to help move this, this metric? And that's where you really need to focus on quantifying the need and kind of describing the why with more context, whether it's usage data or customer quotes or market research. And so there's no better way to get buy-in than doing that. You sit the team down as a team, but you start kind of with your lead so that the three of you can first align. And then we've done this before, which goes very far, is if you do a good enough job at that, the technical lead or the design lead could lead the same kickoff with the greater feature team, right? So you could have a technical lead sit down and talk about market opportunities, talk about the why, and then you get quicker, faster buy-in from the rest of the engineering team on these things. So even if you're a junior product manager, this happens all the time, like you're saying, you could have the average age of your feature team might be 38 and you might be a 23-year-old product manager. And so there's this natural human thing that kicks in. It's like, oh my God, like I should be leading all of these very experienced people in these different fields. And I'm nervous, I'm scared. What the hell am I doing here? You get a lot of imposter syndrome. You know, I th there's a lot of literature on that as well. But I think the team is, you know, everyone has different skills and some people don't want to do certain things. Some people aren't equipped to do other things, whereas they're really good in other areas. And so I think as a product manager, as long as you come open-minded with a growth mindset, as long as you have positive energy, as long as you show people that you're putting in the work, they might be able to do a lot of the work that you're doing. They just don't like doing it, you know, or it's not their forte. So they're, they're happy that someone is doing that. They're happy that someone, this is the other big input as well is if, if you're good and decisive, if you're good at making decisions, that by itself goes a long way. Nothing is more empowering than having someone come in and say, look, with the information we have, this feels like the right direction. I don't know if it is for certain, but I'm going to make the call to go this way. That That is like a small, subtle thing that goes a long way. I think a lot of humans are naturally scared to just be decisive in certain environments, but I think that's what you pay great product managers for. You, you pay them to make decisions, right? You pay them to set the course and go. Whereas it's natural, you know, one of my other mentors is like, as long as you're right more than 50% of the time, and as long as we're moving fast enough, I'm happy, right? Like what I'm not happy with is if we go very slow and we only make a few decisions, and one of those ends up being wrong, then that's not good. We need to create more of a flywheel of, of speed on that front. I think that's a huge advantage for any company. Can you be more decisive 
Amazon has a lot of, you know, very public posts on this where there's kind of one way and two way decisions, right? One way door decisions really can't be undone. So a lot of times the CEO will make those. Whereas if it's a two way door decision, make it move on. If you can always go back, but just be right on average. Yeah. So which leads me to conversation about hiring. Like talk to me about hiring product managers. What skills do you look for in these people? How do you test for those skills? Yeah, for sure. Hiring for products hard. I think once you especially get to a certain level of, of interviewing product managers, they're good at talking, they're fast, you know, they, they can hit on a lot of the key points, they can say a lot of the right things. You know, I think the things that we like to test on are, are more around examples of, you know, show me where you had a bias to act, right? Show me where you're able to break down your own roadblocks, you know, show me when you made a decision that was actually wrong and how did you reflect on that with your team, right? Did you build more confidence in your team even though the decision was wrong? How did you overcome it? So I think we, at the end of the day, you know, if you think about organizational design, the reason that we create these little autonomous feature teams is that with very little dependencies is that so they can kind of move on their own. And so when we talk to and interview various product managers, we try to look for signals that, that are related on that front. Like help me understand how you took a revenue goal and made a demonstrable impact to it. That to me is far more interesting than a list of 20 features that you've shipped, right? I wanna focus more on the outcomes. Like what, what is one thing that you're incredibly proud of? What is one thing that if you could do it totally differently knowing what you know now, how would you have changed your approach? And the reason that we like that question is that really, you really want people that reflect on each of the decisions so that if they were wrong, they're kind of constantly course correcting and learning so they don't make the same you know, mistake again. So I'd say if you're interviewing for product management roles, like lead with examples, right? I don't care how good you are at understanding agile processes, right? Like I don't care as much about the, the process of product because I think those things can be trained pretty effectively. I want to know more about kind of the grit and rigor and ambition of the person coming in, because no matter the stage of the business, things are going to get hard at some point. And like, that's where true leadership kind of shines, right? When things get hard and it's the end of the world, is this person going to be the one continuing to motivate and inspire people out of those troughs? Because that to me is worth way more than a product manager who keeps the train on the track when everything is great, right? And if, if you are the PM who just keeps the train on the track, I would always be looking at ways to make what you already have better, more effective, challenge the status quo, figure out are we leaving money on the table, things like that. So jumping back to product ops, are the skills you look for different? Is that role different in some ways that you'd look for from the product manager? Take me through like when you're hiring in that particular role, is it what you're looking for? Yeah, and our you know our product ops function is still new. So I do think we're still navigating you know uh, more signals that we think will lead to a good product ops manager in, in today. You know, I, I think from a skills point of view, communication is paramount between both. Right. So if you're in product ops and your roles and responsibility are collecting all the pipes of information into product and then also pushing information back out, you have to be really good at communication. I think that's true for product management as well. Prod ops is a highly task oriented role as well. There's a lot of really cool 
opportunities to automate a lot of their day-to-day. And so when we look at hiring product ops managers, our team has been really great at first nailing kind of the task-oriented approach to any particular initiative. And then they go back over it with a lens of how can we automate this workflow? Is there any low-hanging fruit where, you know, we can buy something or build, you know, some basic technology to speed something up? So I think product ops is kind of one of these fun, if you know, if you're like this like good type A personality, high attention to detail, really trying to figure out how to optimize yourself out of the role, then that's like a, a really good sign that I think you have the right people in that position. And I also think it's an interesting transition in a product, right? You see people from customer success who want to go directly in a product. And I think we've gotten great people through that avenue. I think product ops is an interesting crash course for people coming into product as well, which is to say, let's teach you about the types of inputs to prioritization that exists. Let's walk you through having those conversations with various teams. And then, you know, you can kind of navigate them into more of the execution function of product management proper. But communication, like I think that's what it comes down to, right? Like they survey all the internal teams every month and say, how are we doing? Do you find what we're doing useful? How could it be more useful, right? And you start to learn a lot. This is just highly inquisitive team that is trying to improve internal communications, which is great. So, you know, we're getting to the end. Let's let's talk a little bit about, uh, you know, the future of product management. Uh, what trends you see? I know product-led is one of these big movements. I know I've spoken on it. What do you think of that? Yeah, I, I love it. I, you know, Joe Chernoff had a slide in one of his recent presentations that kind of showed, I think it was like a bunch of zebra at a watering hole. And I'm like, oh no, what is what is this slide? But Joe, Joe made an awesome point where he's like, I think product is becoming the epicenter of a lot of these big businesses, you know, not just tech businesses, not just consumer tech, B2B tech, but even these bigger enterprises, you see hiring product leaders, which I think is a super cool trend, like, right? Like craft foods, you know, like all these big companies that have been around forever, you'll randomly see these like chief product officers pop up and you're like, what the hell is that person doing there? That's, I've been very intrigued in trying to read more and more on, you know, these Silicon Valley product leaders taking roles at, you know, a massive food brand or otherwise. And I think, you know, we saw the first wave of digitizing your business, right? There's this big kind of transition on how do we make what we already have more effective through introducing technology, so on and so forth. I think now what you're seeing is more and more companies are trying to figure out like what is their experience layer? Like how do you think about experiencing brands in new ways? My friend Jack, who he recently put out an article on uh, LinkedIn, he was the VP of product at WeWork and he's, he's starting to kind of, he's transitioned into kind of a new position and he put out this very thoughtful post on like the evolution of just how humans engage in general with technology and how other big brands are trying to hire these product leaders to figure out how do we productize what was very much so kind of an offline brand into the new world, right? And I think there's a lot of interesting uh, trends on that front. There's a lot recently on uh, Katzenberg's new company with Meg Whitman on I think it's Quibi or something. It's like quick bits, but their whole thesis is that humans have like a 10 minute attention span at best for lengthy content even. And so their new uh, this massive media company is forming around just very quick consumable 
you know, mobile content. It's, you know, five minutes, nine minutes, 10 minutes. And so I think you're going to keep seeing that attention span of humans probably go down and the expectations are only going to keep going up, right? So when you walk into SFO, you expect to be checked in, you expect to touch a single finger on clear and walk through everything. You know, you expect to show up at Starbucks and your coffee is waiting for you on the counter with your name printed on it. Is it good that our intention span's going down? I'm going to go back and read like Huxley's A Brave New World and stuff like that. <laughs> Sorry, I wasn't listening. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, we've moved away from like, we're like, our news is like clickbait news now as opposed yeah. to like detailed analysis. We feel like people are getting more, like they have a superficial knowledge of a lot of things and in-depth of a lot less. And I... And not always the case, but you see more and more trending that way. Is it bad that our attention span is going down and that we're catering to people in that way, right? There's uh, there's a TED Talk about, you know, giving up news. I forgot who gave it. I really recommend watching it. It was short, yeah. as it turns out. Uh, I met my attention span. But uh, I was talking about just, you know, like going cold turkey off of news because news is now designed in a way that just like these short little bursts of stimulation, like breaking news all the time, which doesn't seem like it's breaking, but are we losing this? Uh, is it bad that our attention spans are shrinking? It's interesting. I mean, as a consumer, convenience is becoming more and more important. You know, it's, it's hard to answer, right? Like, I think about kind of the, the attention span of consumers versus what is super important that we cannot impact is giving people and encouraging people to immerse in hard problems, especially from the builder side. So one of my fears on that front might be, you know, that starts to bleed over into the workplace where you you no longer have people immersing, you know, uninterrupted amounts of time on hard problems. And I think in academia, that's less of a less of an issue. But certainly as the new generation of workers come into the workforce, there's a question on how long will they stay with the company, right? How much time can they immerse in the biggest problems? Or are they going to be in and out of email every 10 minutes because it triggers dopamine to hit archive, right? I think Nier's new book covers a lot of this in terms of distraction and, and the impact of it. But I think from a society point of view, you know, I'm all for things being more convenient. You know, this was a big thesis of Brightloom. Starbucks chief digital officer just joined Eaton Brightloom as the CEO. And a lot of what they're doing is to figure out how to really drive convenience with the brand, because that's a big part of what, for example, I want going into Starbucks. I want to walk in, pick up my coffee and, and depart. And I love that experience with their brand. And I'm a loyalist because of it. So I think it'll come down to the product and the brand and kind of really understanding what the consumer values the most on that front, which I think is exciting. I just, I think there's all these cool evolutions in the products that are out there today. And I think there's going to be more of it uh, every day as well. Yeah. You know, I, I, I get that. I want to do, I'm going to dig back into this attention span a little bit more, right? Like, we grew up, you read 1984, right, growing up? Yeah, and, and there's all this fear, you know, that people would deprive us of information, right? In essence, Orwell's saying you'll be deprived of information, you'd be banning books, and Huxley in, in, in A Brave New World talked about the fact that there would be so much information that truth would be drowned in like the sea of irrelevance kind of thing, right? To quote, I think Vox said something like that. You know, that we in, in Orwell were like a captive of culture and, and with Huxley, we become like 
we're just lost in like an overwhelming amount of information. And that's kind of where like where we are today. You hear, you hear these stories of fake news, you hear all these, you know, other things that are going on. And it's hard digging the truth out of things. And as we move to shorter and shorter attention spans, do any people like really, you know, do we push people to dig into the meat of the matters? I mean, is that like beyond product management? Is that something we should be concerned about? Oh, man, I'm like, what did I sign up for here? Um, <laughs> right at the end of the podcast, too. Jeez, and man. shout out to, uh, you know, Vox. I remember reading an article there that kind of just recently just got yeah. this going in my head. Yeah, I think, you know, I think there's probably two fronts. Like one is more on the, the personal front. So what happens when you have everything fighting for your attention? You have all these people in your life, you know. I think what you'll see is you'll see more vertical personal engagement type stuff. There's this guy, Alex Cornell, who I've known for a while. He co-founded a new company recently. He previously led video at, at Facebook. They have this new app that's more around kind of the, the microcosms of best friends and family and figuring out what matters to that group and really forming kind of a community and tribe, you know, to a smaller scale. And they think that you know, intrinsically, this adds a lot of value in terms of when you have a lot of other apps might call it your close friends, for example, but they're really trying to hit on nuances with these kind of micro communities that they're seeing early success with. And so with personal, I think you're going to see more of these maybe less big, big stuff like the global Facebook community. I think you're going to see more kind of personalized social networks that really are integrated with your life. So we know that this person always orders a pepperoni pizza through this crazy integration and they're in my little social community and I'm somehow able to use these fun little bits of personalized information to share gifts or to, on their birthday, send them a pepperoni pizza. Like tiny things that I would feel more comfortable sharing more information on, knowing that the security is there is interesting. It's, it's hard for work. Like we, you have the same problem. Like we have an NPS product, right? And there's this thing that's like kind of like digital fatigue where people see the same things over and over. And it's not just the sophisticated three companies that use NPS now, it's everyone uses NPS. So everyone's used to having these surveys pop up. So it's one of the things we're really challenging ourselves on internally is start from the assumption that everything is fighting for that person's attention who's buying your product. Right? So if you're selling into the enterprise, remove all the fat from your product that you can that really focuses on the true value transactions that happen. I think it's natural the older your company gets, the more you think you need to jam in more bells and whistles. I, I think another approach could be how do you make what you already have even better, even more convenient, even more integrated, even more less touch such that it's accomplishing the thing that needs to get done almost as a process in the background so that humans can then refocus on what they're best at, right? And so I think anyone who's building products, that's kind of an interesting lens to look through is like, what if what we already have is pretty great, but we can just keep making the, the pain less and less, right? Or as a, a running process in the background. Yeah, I think there's a lot of stuff we can learn. And, and, you know, it's reminding me that the Vox article is written by, you know, it was quoting from Neil Postman's Amusing Ourselves to Death, which was written back in 85 and was applied to television and television kind of replacing like print and books uh, as a way to consume information. And now we're at the point where social media like takes that to a whole nother level. I mean, it's much, much worse than television as far as brevity 
and potential for abuse, right, as we've seen. Uh, but we can do a whole podcast on that. Yeah. Let's wrap this up today by talking about two things about Jason. What, what's your favorite product? My favorite product... I always switch between like a consumer product or maybe like a work consumption product. I think from a work point of view, I've really appreciated trip actions, right? So I have to travel a lot for work. It's uh, traveling a lot can be a sensitive thing when there's a lot of expenses that are being floated, right? So if you're floating, you know, 10, 20, 30 grand for a lot of travel, you do get a little bit more nervous in terms of, man, how am I tracking this? You know, we use Expensify as well, but the reason I like trip actions is that they, they encourage me to be more frugal. They encourage me, but not at the cost of comfort, which I think is an, a very important thing that they've learned, right? Like don't give me the middle seat on row 33 on a six hour flight, but let me know that, you know, seat 24 in the aisle is open and uh, based on our company's policy, they manage all that as well. They'll give me like a hundred dollar Amazon gift card if I can save five hundred bucks on a flight. And I think that's that's a cool experience. The company nets four hundred back, right? And Trip Actions presumably takes a small cut, and then they reward me for that behavior. And my favorite part about Trip Actions, second to that, is. I can go back retroactively and I can look at all my trips and I can see if the expense was pushed through and reimbursed, which is kind of nice. So it's, it, it manages a lot of stress and pain associated with an age-old problem, which is just managing work travel. So I've been, I've been pleasantly surprised with that product. On the home front, um, I got to give a shout out to probably Sonos plus Spotify. You know, those are the things I probably use most outside of my Philips Hue bulbs. It's simple. They don't try to cram a bunch of crap in either of the products. They're like, hey, we're really good at playing music, so we're gonna do that, great. And Spotify is really great at helping me discover related music, great. And then Philips Hue is like, we're here to turn on your lights. We're here to turn off your lights. We're here to dim your lights. Like, they nail those use cases. Um, and they, they could pack a bunch of other crap in the experience on, making timers and theme, all these things front and center, but it's more like progressive disclosure. If like, yeah, if you really wanna go and set up a theme such that you get home on average at 7 p.m. and all your lights will turn on at you know 6.55, we'll do that. But it's not in your face, which is why I like it. It's, we're good at this, this is what we're gonna show you. If you're a nerd and wanna do a little digging, we have all these great advanced features as well. So I think any product that's mindful of the novice user, I'm like always appreciative of. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you. One final question for you today, Jason. Yeah. Three words to describe yourself. Three words to describe myself. Um, I would say jovial, but that probably comes at the cost of me being weird. So it'd be jovial, awkward, but driven. You know, I think my brain is more towards the, maybe the creative side and I like to write and that kind of comes out in, in that work. Sweet. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. This has been Product Love. Thank you for tuning into this episode. Check out the rest of our articles and interviews on productcraft.com, an online magazine by and for product people.